Hey, welcome to Conversations with my dear friend, Jeff Conway. My name is Susan. This is A Different Kind of Walk. Hey, everybody. In this episode, Jeff and I got to interview Justin Skizik, who is an artist and professional graphic designer, as well as a co-founder and leader of the I'll Push You organization, which facilitates hikes along the Camino de Santiago in Spain for people with disabilities. Justin has become wheelchair-bound himself as an adult, and we'll let him tell you that story and explain what life is like for him today. And as you might already know, Jeff will be joining one of Justin's groups on the Camino this coming June. Enjoy the episode. And Justin Skizik, it's great to have you join us. So I love your story. I didn't know anything about it. I walked the Camino in 17 and heard about it later. Um, And so that's been the connection. And now I'm in this monthly group with you, the Push Life. Uh, with people throughout the world, which is incredible and awesome. So I've appreciated that and wanted you to uh, share a little bit about your story, who you are, where you come from, your faith kind of background, and um, just have some conversations that we're having there. Okay, well, um, so I can I will kind of go back to the beginning here because it kind of all ties in together. So uh, I... I'm from Eastern Oregon. Uh, I currently live in Boise, Idaho, e- an Eagle, which is a little uh, community outside of Boise. But uh, I grew up in Eastern Oregon, right on the Oregon-Idaho border. So about 45 minutes from where I am right now. Very loving parents. Uh, they're still married, just past 50 years. Um, but I was born and raised in a Nazarene church. That's where I went to church, uh, the Nazarene doctrine, which is part of Wesleyanism. I had great, good community of people um, as a kid, you just kind of growing up and that's just, you know, youth groups. I, I was the, I grew up going Sunday morning, Sunday evening and Wednesdays for youth group. So I was at church like a lot. <laughs> I felt like not including extracurricular youth group activities and those mm. kind of things. Um, but as far as my disability is concerned, I just shy of my 16th birthday, I was involved in an automobile accident. And um, it ended up triggering a progressive neuromuscular disease in my body. And the disease I have is very, very similar to ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. So um, the technical diagnosis is multifocal acquired motor axonopathy. (laughs) Uh, MAMA or MAMA, that's what they call it for short. and it's almost identical to ALS. I was actually diagnosed with ALS in my early twenties, but it didn't quite fit. So, um, through a lot of process of elimination and testing and blood drawn and years of being in doctor's offices and doing all of that, um, I finally have the diagnosis I do now. And the difference between my disease and like ALS is, um, it's just not as aggressive. So ALS is very quick. So usually somebody has it and it's, it's a very quick, you know, it is terminal. It's a terminal disease because uh, you don't die from ALS um, or particularly in my disease as well. It's usually complications from it. So you can't breathe, you get pneumonia, those kind of things that will take you out. So um, mine is just a longer span. Uh, and so I'm 46 now. 
<clears throat> I am in a wheelchair. I'm in a power wheelchair. Um, I, and I have to be cared for, for pretty much every aspect of my life, getting up in the morning until I go to bed at night. And that's getting clothes on and off, showering, bathroom, uh, eating. Uh, I can still operate a computer uh, through technology, but you know, there's most of my life I'm dependent upon others. Uh, I don't drive anymore, those kind of things. So um, it's makes life interesting, as you can imagine. Um, but it hasn't stopped me from doing things that I want to do in my life. And so, so you I, have function in one of your hands that help you can still drive your wheelchair. I can, I ha- it takes two hands for me to drive my wheelchair, but eventually, um, like even my, my left hand is my dominant now. Um, eventually I'll probably have to move to a head control because I won't be able okay. to use my hands anymore. So that day is coming, um, which would complicate things even more, but that's just a bridge I have to cross when I get there. So, um, so yes, I, I do have some function. Uh, it's very, very minimal in my arms or my hands at the moment. So um, but you know, I, I'm married. I mean, I have a, an amazing wife, Kirsten, and we've been married for 21 years now. And, um, we have three kids, uh, Jaden, Noah, and Lauren. Jaden is 18 and a freshman at Boise state university. Noah is 16 looking at going to college coming up. And then Lauren is in middle school in eighth grade. So we still have the teen years we got to get through with her. <laughs> it's gonna be all all hands on deck for sure but um but yeah i mean that's that's kind of my story in a relatively quick nutshell well thank you for sharing i i really appreciate that um you said that it triggered the the disease was that something that you already had and that just made it appear made it manifest or is did it did the car accident actually cause it Um, the disease that I have is genetic. I'm genetically dispositioned to have it. That's a very rare, like really, really, really rare combination. My parents just happened to have, um, so it's all my parents' fault. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) It's not their fault. Um, so most likely my disease probably would have shown up now in my forties. Um, but the accident kind of aggravated it and got it started early. So I'm a very, very, very rare case um, out of even the rareness of the disease itself. So um, most, I mean, there's a, a handful of people in the country that even have the disease that I have. So unfortunately, there's not a ton of research and things that could help me. There are a couple treatments that can help me. Um, the one that is the most well-known is called IVIG, which is an immunoglobin that you take from people who donate blood. And it takes like 10,000 people to get one dose. If my math, I think that's what I was told. I'm not sure if that's exact. And I was, I did that. I did, um, I was scheduled for 10 treatments and it's supposed to kind of reset your autoimmune system and re kind of um, slow it down and re kind of reposition it. So it doesn't the disease doesn't continue to progress. <clears throat> but in my case, I had a severe reaction to it. And it was so severe that I was actually, when I, I was able to walk before I mm-hmm. took 
the medication. And then after five doses, it put me in the hospital and I was permanently in a wheelchair at that point. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it was just, my body didn't react to it very well. And that's the way that it happened for me, but it, um, you know, some people react to it and it can help kind of slow it down. But for me, it just, there's really nothing that can be done. Well, unfortunately, I didn't know that part of the story. So you went to school in Southern California. That's where you met your wife, correct? Yeah. So we didn't go to college together, but I did go to school uh, at Point Loma Nazarene University, which is in San Diego, California. And it's a uh, private Christian school. And I love is it on the beach it is right on the ocean yes it's right is that why you went um no it wasn't because (laughs) of the beach i mean it was a big cherry on the top for sure but (laughs) you know i just i didn't really think of it that way i didn't go like oh i'm gonna go here because there's the beach here you know because i'm coming from the mountains to go to the beach but it was i i just knew like the feeling of when I came onto campus, it was just, okay, this is the place I need to be. This is the and, place, yeah. And it just happened to be in a very, very beautiful place. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I got, did, I got to spend four years on the ocean um, and, or three years. Did you know graphic design was what you wanted to do? Not initially. So I've always been uh, an artist or creative individual. So ever since I was little, I've always been drawing and, and, you know, spending in church, I would, you know, pastors preaching, completely ignoring him. And I'm just drawing pictures, (laughs) you know, as a kid, kids don't listen. Uh, maybe some things, maybe some things went in from time to time, but, uh, (laughs) but my brother and I would always draw and I would always draw like letters and numbers and shapes and more graphical based type things. And I didn't even really know I mean, as a kid, you don't really don't think about that because graphic design wasn't in the forefront of the like the world as it is now, but at least at that time when I was a kid. So I, you know, I always had done art and even in high school, I'd done worked on a yearbook and worked design t-shirts and just did stuff because I just liked to do it. I mean, it was really no other than just being creative because I loved it. I loved it. And then I went to college. And I came in as a as an undeclared uh, general ed because I really didn't know what I was going to do. I was thinking about maybe business communications or marketing communications or something along that line. Um, but I was living with my cousin actually, my first my roommate, my first year and my second year. But specifically, he said, "Hey, you're always drawn and you're artist, so why don't you become a graphic designer?" And I was like, "What's that?" <laughs> and he's like, well, you get to create logos and, you know, brochures and things for people. It's like, it's like you get to be an artist, but you also get to, you know, you get, get paid. paid. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that sounds kind of cool. Uh, and so I ended up becoming a graphic design major and little did I know that that was going to be my career for, uh, it still is to a certain degree. I mean, I, I am, I still do it. Um, it depends on what it is, but and I do it for my own business with Patrick and other things that I need to do, but it's a skill set that has served me well. And it was been, a, I've been, I've had a very 
awesome and very successful career working for brands, large brands, um, you know, Infinity, Nissan, uh, Hewlett Packard, um, to like luxury brands to, I mean, I've literally have had the gamut <laughs> uh, and I've always enjoyed it. And I just love the process of being creative and putting that puzzle together and, and somebody coming to me and saying, Hey, I had this idea for something and they don't know how to get there and I get to help them get there. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd probably say the thing that I enjoy about it the most is, is I view creativity as an asset. So it's not just something I do for a living. It's something that's ingrained and in, in interwoven in, in my life and how I live it. Because living with a disability, Jeff, as you know, it takes a different way of thinking to navigate just life in general. Um, you have to look at things a little differently. And it played, it's played over and over and over in my life to, as my disease has progressed, as I, you know, I've traveled and, and go on the Camino with Pat. I mean, there's lots of things that we had to figure out along the way. And so it's a, like an awesome kind of sword at my side that I can, you know, pull out and, and start wielding at any time. And so it's, um, I, I feel blessed that I get to that I've had the career that I've had and then I've had even the disease progression that I've had. It sounds weird to say that, but it's true because that's led me down paths I never thought I would go down. So Justin, you've been an encouragement and supporter to me without even realizing it. Just, you know, I'm still in the midst of NIH study. I feel 90%. This is PLS, primary lateral sclerosis. It reads right down to what's happened to my body, to the pain, to everything. But the doctors, you know, still want to jab me and figure out and think <laughs> I've got these two things that are not usually PLS. So let's keep playing with this. But just your journey and how long it took to get to that diagnosis as calm me down that I don't need the words. I just need to figure out how to live my life with where my body is right now. So thank you for doing that. Uh -huh. um, I, I appreciate that in a lot of ways. And I can't wait to journey with you in Spain face to face. That will be fun. But um, uh, tell us um, a little bit more because Susan doesn't know this. So let's jump to Patrick a little bit and your journeys together, your friendship, and the Camino, the book, and the documentary in five minutes. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, I'll, <laughs> I'll kind of run through it very quick. So uh, my best friend, Pat, Patrick uh, Gray, is, was born about 36 hours after me. So Pat and I have known each other our whole lives and he's always, we've always been living life together and going on adventures together. And as we've kind of, as we've gotten older, and you broke somebody's window together. <laughs> we've done a lot of things, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, is that one of the stories your mom tells or you tell? Oh, we've we've broke. I mean, oh, yeah, we've, done, we've done lots of things. I would I would suggest if you want to really get to know Patrick and I, just watch our movie and then um, read our book. I'll push you. Both titled the same thing, so I'll push you as the book and movie. But um, so Pat and I, as we've gotten older, we've you know got married to our respective spouses. We've traveled. We've done things, and there was a time in the around 2013 uh i'm sorry 2012 ish where we were kind of like um just we just want to do something with just the two of us just me and him um and we had talked about it for a few months and what was kind of delaying things was um so patrick's youngest is uh, olivia she's from she's adopted from china so that just that process took a very long time um more than they expected and so it kind of delayed things a bit but we were kind of like on the back burner pat and i were like let's just do something two of us and i learned about this the camino de santiago in 2012 um which if nobody's familiar with what that is it's a 500 mile well it's longer than 500 miles but it it's a pilgrimage in spain that ends in santiago de compostela in the northwest corner of spain the most common route is the French way, which starts in Southwest France and traverses 500 miles due West, basically. And you go over three mountain ranges and it's a lot of walking. <laughs> uh, so I learned about this pilgrimage um, watching Rick Steves on from Rick Steves Europe on PBS. And I asked Pat if he wanted to go and his response was, I'll push you. That's what he said. So uh we settled on that and there's a lot that ha- kind of happened in that period of time. I actually went and uprooted my family from San Diego, which is where I was living at the time. Kirsten and I decided to pull our kids out of school and move to Italy for a little while. So did that. Um, while, and I just told Pat, I said, Hey man, I can't plan a pilgrimage and moving to Europe at the same time. So um we kind of tabled it for a little bit. And while I was in Italy, he called me and says, Hey man, I have the time off for next year, which is in 2014. Do you want to, can we make it happen then? I said, yeah, sure. So we, I came back from Italy, um, knew pretty well. It was pretty evident that God was moving, needed us to move to Idaho. It was like crazy year. Come back from Italy a week, 10 days later, I was up here in Idaho visiting for like a family reunion, high school reunion, seeing Pat. And we we're driving back and my wife and I just looked at her and we said, I think we need to move to Idaho. So uh, came back to San Diego, sold our house. 30 days later, we were living in Idaho. It was like a whirlwind wow. of a year um, getting kids settled in school and all of that. But Pat and I started training and went on this, on this pilgrimage. And we made it in 35 days, took us 35 days to go 500 miles. And we had a lot of people help us. Um, We, we lost count over 150 um, people that helped us. And we just kind of stopped counting at that point. And then we had, I think it was like 27 different countries of people helping us along the way. Uh, We documented it, thus the movie. Uh, we took a documentary crew with us and then we just documented. We're just like, okay, we're just going to see how this goes. And we didn't know what was going to happen with it. 
and we came back from Spain and and took us another two years to get the film, um, year and a half to get the film out. And it was released in theaters all around the country. And now it's globally. And it's like then when a book came and that's done very well and that's in multiple languages. And it's kind of crazy, like just yeah. having this stupid idea to go do this thing. And then, <laughs> you know, basically it's just Pat and I wanting to go do something together. And that has just kind of blossomed and grown into, you know, we have three books, we have online courses, the um, monthly program that you talk about, Jeff, uh, Push Life, that we're a part of every month. Um, and then we take people with disabilities on the Camino too. So it's kind of a whole thing that stemmed out of an idea of doing this thing. Yeah. How did you get from, we're going to do it ourselves to, Hey, you know what? We can, we could like lead other people to do this too. Like, how did you actually start doing that? Yeah. You know, it, it all ha- kind of happened organically. So when we came back from Spain, you know, we were, we got a lot of media attention and that kind of stuff because I'm the first person in a wheelchair to do it, to complete it. At least to my knowledge, I was the first person from St. John all the way to Santiago, the full 500 and going over the mountain passes and everything. So um, that kind of like the seed was planted for a lot of things. And then as the story spread, people watched the movie, read the books, you know, they would just call or email and say, Hey, I'm in a wheelchair or I can't walk as far as well. Like, how do you do it? What's the, you know, what's the, you know, what can I look out for? How do you plan for these kind of things and blah, blah, blah. And so I would just spend time as people would email or contact. And I would just get on a call with them and just talk with them about, Hey, this is what I learned. And this is what you can think about and blah, blah, blah. So then after, I don't know, about seven or eight different calls (laughs) and emails and probably more than that, I just turned to Pat and I said, Hey, maybe we should do something about this. And figure out if we could take people like would you be interested maybe we do that we go back to spain every year and just take a group and we thought it would be small like maybe maybe two or three people in wheelchairs and then you know a few helpers and then we just do the last hundred kilometers because that's the easiest route easy is a relative term by the way jeff will jeff knows this but he'll learn as we get go back in a chair it's a different story so um you know, it's just, we, we just spent about a year and a half planning it and working and trying to figure out and removing as many barriers as possible. And we did it. And now it just kind of, we took our first group in 2019 and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> so uh, we've had to postpone three times now, which is really unfortunate, but we are very confident we're going to be going back in june of this year so i have my booster shot yeah everyone's boosted i'm triple vaxxed as well so um (laughs) but yeah it's uh i know a lot of people are waiting to go with us and it's been a lot of people have been very patient i mean some people well we first we underestimated the demand Mm -hmm. for the group drastically because the original open spot was 30 spots total with only i think it was like five chairs and we had 90 something applicants because you have to apply to go with us because we have to vet everybody and talk with everybody. And so we're like, whoa, maybe we should expand this a little bit more. And so we, we partnered with Camino Ways. They're out of Ireland, Dublin, Ireland. And 
um, they help us with all the online on ground logistics and transportation. And so we had to kind of expand the group. So our first group was 52 people we ended up taking and 10 chairs and uh, 37 helpers. And that was not enough helpers. So mm -hmm. we learned uh, that we need more helpers to people in chairs. And so we learned that. And, but it's been talking about a life-changing experience. I mean, just for us to be able to be the, we call ourselves the conductors of these groups. You know, the group is what makes the magic happen, really. Because you have people from all around the world that come and help push, pull, um, make it happen for the people that need a little help getting there. And it's pretty remarkable. Mm. Um, so the 150 plus people who helped you when you first went, were they just random strangers? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They would see us and they were just like, you need help? I'm like, yep. And so they'd help kind of pitch in. And sometimes people stayed with us for a couple of weeks. Sometimes it was just a few seconds, mm -hmm. like just getting us up a hill and off they went. So um, I mean, there's so many remarkable stories of people pitching in. Um, I would recommend definitely reading the book and watching the movie. The movie, you'll see it happen right in front of you, but all organic. Yeah, just people coming in and saying, oh, yeah, I want to help be a part of this. And mm -hmm. I, I'm a firm believer that we all want to be a part of something greater in our lives. Um, and I learned that at, that people are inherently good. There's a lot of good in this world. And unfortunately we don't hear about it every day in the news and those kind of things and social media and just kind of barraged with the bad apples and bad things happening, but there's a lot of goodness that's mm. there. And we just kind of think that we need to turn our eyes towards that a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. Um, so two questions I have, if I don't forget them, one was just, when you first got diagnosed and as you, as your um, disease has progressed, I guess I'm curious what emotions you've gone through. Jeff and I have had episodes about grief and loss and um, just how people deal with these sorts of things. And I'm curious how that has affected you. Um, and then my second question, how do you deal with needing people yeah sorry two big questions <laughs> yeah um okay so i think starting with the first one just dealing with kind of the ebbs and flows of grief, grief and loss as i've lost function over the years um it's I, it's accurate to say that it's definitely has come in waves um ups and downs and everything in between the when i was First dealing when I'm, I'm thinking back when I was, you know, young, I mean, I'm in my teens dealing with just my, it start my disease started with my left foot. So at first it was like superficial questions. Okay. Is this because of the car accident? Is this because of something else that's going on? Like what's, what's happening here. And you're trying to figure out those just getting answers. Um, and my, I would say just my overall kind of um, tone through all of it has been that God's been in it the entire time because 
not to say that it's easy. It's, it's not easy at all. I mean, at first it was just kind of like, okay, trying to figure out what's going on. And then as I'm, I'm in college and then now I'm, you know, sitting, I'll never forget it. I mean, I'm sitting in a doctor's office alone, 19 years old or 20 years old, sitting there and the doctor saying you have four years to live. Like, what do you do with that? But part of me has always been, okay, well, if I have four years to live, then I'm going to make the best of it. I'm going to do what I can to enjoy it. Part of me knew that he wasn't quite right when he said it. So I was like, I think I still need to kind of figure this out. So then I, you know, it just didn't quite fit. I just knew instinctively. Um, Jeff, you kind of talked about that just recently with your right. trying to figure yeah. out. You're like, okay, I know instinctively like this, you're not quite right here, but let's, so it kind of kept pushing on that. You know, fortunately he was wrong. Um, so there's kind of like that initial shock of like, holy crap, I may not have as long on this planet as I thought I would, um, but I'm going to be hell bent on trying to make sure that I enjoy it. If I'm going to be here, I'm going to be here. And I think even though I knew the doctor was wrong, I've never lost that. I'm going to make the best of it. So which kind of gave me the extra oomph in my step to keep at it over the years. I've never really prescribed to go work my entire life and then enjoy it in retirement. Like I've never really understood that concept. Why would I do that? <laughs> so, um, but I, the, the, the probably one of the deepest and darkest, hardest times for me was in 2010, when I lost my upper body, my arms went like super quick that year. Um, within like 40 days, I'd lost 60 or 70% of my upper body. So when you, I was in that point, I was in a manual wheelchair. I was able to kind of even navigate dealing, pushing around and just kind of taking each step as it came not dwelling on it too much and just going, okay, well, this is the next course for me. I guess I'll have to figure it out and still live the best life that I can. And so I've always kind of hit that, but when you're, when your arms go uh, and you're not able to feed yourself and like, you have a really hard time getting on the toilet and showering, and then you have to have people start coming in to help you. Um, I mean, I've had neighbors come over and pick me up off the floor. I've had, um, I've had people pull up my pants. I've even had my water guy, like my water delivery guy, unbutton my pants so I can go to the bathroom, like crazy situations I never thought I would be in. And you can look at those and be like, you can go, I believe you can go down two kind of roads. You can just go down and spiral out of control. Or you can be like, okay, People in our lives are willing, even strangers, and it's been proven to me over and over and over and over again, that there are so many people willing to step in and be a part of your journey, to guide you, to sit with you when you're mourning. You know, that 2010 year, I mean, I, I had suicide. I was suicidal. I had like, I was thinking like, why would I even want to move on? Because if this is the way my life is going to be now, like, why would I want to? 
put that burden upon my wife because Kirsten's my primary caregiver at this point. You know, my family's having to step in. Pat's coming flying down to give Kirsten a break. I mean, it's like dealing with the disease that I have is not just me. It is a massive ripple effect. Um, and so, but throughout all of that, I've been very blessed because I've had a church family. I've had friends. I've had, you know, my own family, my wife's family, you know, just step in and say, Hey, how can we help you? And how can we, you know, make mm -hmm. this work? How can, you know, what do you need? And and it started with friends and family, and then it kind of grew into church and other, you know, even strangers coming over and helping out. I mean, I literally have stories after stories I could tell you about just strangers coming in and helping. Um, and it's, but it's, you have to, I believe if you're struggling with something in your life, whether if it's monumental of like a disease or maybe you're, you're dealing with grief of loss, um, you have to allow people to come in and be a part of that. And the natural tendency is you don't want to feel like a burden. The, a, the burden upon coming in and helping or the burden that you're, that you're projecting upon somebody else. In reality, there's no burden at all. So people are willing to come in and be like, yeah, what do you need? I got you. Like, I'm here to sit with you. If you need to go, you know, you can help me cook meals. Great. I'll do that. If you need me to mow your yard. Great. I'll do that. And the perception, like if it's kind of coming from my seat could be a, Oh, I don't want that because I don't want to put you out. And it's really my own projection upon somebody else. But what I've realized, it's kind of like, um, and there's a saying that I've said for years, um, is when you deny someone the opportunity to help you, you deny them the joy in life. And the, it's like the most amazing gift you can give to somebody to say, yeah, come on in. And, 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 and if they're willing to come in and they've expressed that willingness to come in. Like, why would you deny them that? And the benefit on the other side of it is it just opens up the opportunity for us to love one another and for God's love to be known in the world. So like, why would I want to stop that from happening? Um, and I've met so many people that when they're struggling with something, they just, I call it cave. They go into their cave and they're like, they don't let anybody know that they're dealing with anything. They don't, they don't tell family. They don't tell friends. They don't tell church family. They don't. And I'm like, why would you do that? Like you literally have probably hundreds of people at your fingertips. Um, even if you don't go to church, like there are people like in work or civic groups that you might be a part of or hobby groups you might be a part of or book clubs or whatever. I mean, these people are willing to step in. Some people may not. That's okay. You don't want those people anyways. So, you know, I mean, there's been some people that are like, yeah, I don't know what to do. So they don't offer their willingness to step in. Like, okay, like, I'm not going to force you to do it. But if somebody's like raising their hand and saying, I can come help you, like, 
it's like an amazing gift you can give to them to just say yes that's it so that quote that you just said there of the gift of allowing somebody else to give you've quoted that in different ways in the movie in the book in our conversations so it was from the movie in the book that then i called toma and gil who will be with us in june and said hey these two guys just did the Camino. And because you said that, and because that was so full in my heart that I wanted to share the joy of the Camino with my two closest friends, I call them up and say, hey, you want to push me for 500 miles? And they were both in their 60s. I'm the baby, so I was only 59. But um, <laughs> um Everybody at first said, yeah, yeah. And then they kind of were like, they watched your movie and how hard it was just getting over the Pyrenees on the first day and thought, we're not going to be able to do this. We need to figure something else out. And then immediately after that, you came up with the, uh, the last accessibility leg. Caminos. Yeah. So, so, I mean, but see, you're touching on something, Jeff, that's very important. You asked them, and their response was an emphatic yes. Right. right. Okay, cool. Let's do that. But that's just a testament of you have everyone has that at their fingertips. And if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, well, I don't have a Patrick in my life. I don't have two best college friends in my life, you know, or a, a spouse or whatever that's in supportive. I would, I would challenge, you're probably not looking hard enough. I can tell you that there are a lot of people willing to help in your life. You just got to let them know about it. Yeah. And they're on your push Caminos. There are some people who show up who they don't know anyone. Right. And they just volunteer to be one of the yeah. people who help push. Yeah. yeah. I would say that's like 70% of the helpers, maybe 80% of the helpers are wow. people that have no, they have no, they have no idea who Jeff is. It is amazing just to see people raise their hand and say, yep, I'm willing to come. I'm not only willing to step in and help push pull like me and Jeff along the way and other people in wheelchairs who they don't know, but they're willing to pay for it and mm -hmm. spend time to do that. Like literally out of their own personal time to plan pay and go that says a lot right there so it's you know it's uh it just blows my mind it's mm. it's so cool thanks for joining us for a different kind of walk for more information about the push camino or to find justin and patrick's book and movie go to www.allpushyou.com. Until next time, live well.